The Video Insiders is the show that makes sense of all that is happening in the world of online video, as seen through the eyes of a second-generation Kodak nerd and a marketing guy who knows what iframes and macro blocks are. And here are your hosts, Mark Donegan and Dror Gill. So hello, everybody, and welcome to the Video Insiders podcast. I'm Dror Gill, and with me is my co-host, Mark Donegan. Hey, Mark, how are you doing? Jor, I'm doing well. Uh, you know, I just finished off my celebration cake. 70 episodes of the Video Insiders podcast. And Jor, you know, this is actually a pretty amazing thing because it's a lot of work to do a podcast. <laughs> yeah, tell me about it, Mark. Tell me. <laughs> and, and since you are taking on most of the uh, uh, responsibility and the, uh, and, and the sweat and, and the effort here, uh, thank you very much. And I know our listeners, uh, thank you as well for all the editing and the great work you do. But no, really, it's really amazing, you know, to have 70 episodes, 70 conversations with amazing guests and amazing people uh, doing really great work in the industry. So, um, you know, thank you to the listeners. Exactly. You are the reason we are here, because if we were talking to empty space, we probably wouldn't be doing it. And, and also, uh, a great thank you to all of our guests. And uh, now I would like to welcome our next guest, who is uh, Ali Begin. He's professor of computer science at Ozegino University in Turkey. Hi, Ali, and uh, welcome to the podcast. Hey, guys. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, welcome, Ali. This is going to be a great conversation. So, Ali, you are a very experienced video insider, uh, both in uh, the academic world and also uh, in the industry. So, uh, can you tell us a bit about um, your background? Sure. By education, I am an electrical engineer, actually. Uh, but uh, in my senior year, I decided to work on computer networks. And then I took a bunch of uh, classes at that time at uh, Bülkent University, uh, where I went to college in Ankara, Turkey. And uh, when I finished in 2001, I got accepted to Georgia Tech for a PhD degree. And uh, for five years, I will study uh, multimedia networking. So I was still in the electrical and computer engineering department, but uh, I took as many courses as I could take from computer science uh, department as well. And, uh, you know, did an internship about for nine months uh, in San Diego, for, you know, at Qualcomm at that time. And uh, tried to get uh, some, uh, you know, industry experience as well. So multimedia networking at that time, uh, you know, uh, there was no application like uh, Zoom or WebEx or YouTube. Uh, you know, uh, even Google was just coming out of being a small startup. So uh, things were still quite new on the web in terms of media distribution. So I did quite a bit of research, published papers and that sort of thing. And after I finished uh, the school, I started at Cisco in San Jose, California. At that time, Cisco was a big uh, player in the video domain, at least was trying to be a big player in the video domain. Uh, a year ago, they acquired Scientific Atlanta, for example, for the, all the head-end gear as well as set-top boxes and so on. So uh, I was in the video and content platforms research and advanced development group. Uh, where we designed uh, and uh, you know developed a number of solutions for IPTV, streaming video, CDNs, and so on. And uh, I was at Cisco for about nine years. Um, and then you know at some point uh, during my tenure, I left uh, uh, you know US first the US and then Canada. I came back to Turkey 
to get married and so on. My my parents uh, were still here. Um, so I was still working remotely for Cisco for about two years. And then uh, I decided to leave the company. I applied for a faculty position just to be on the safe side uh, because, you know, being a faculty keeps you uh, up to date per se, right? Uh, you need to teach. And uh, to be able to teach, obviously, you need to know stuff. And uh, our our domain is not like uh, you can you know you can still teach your uh, textbooks from 1960s. Uh, you know, uh, I teach computer networking and uh, multimedia. Uh, you know, one course in the fall and uh, one course in the spring semester. And pretty much, I update. I have to update my slides each year because a lot of things uh, change. For example, just basic TCP protocol. Obviously, it has seen so many developments uh, since I first uh, studied TCP 20 years ago. And then now today, uh, obviously, we have Quick uh, as an you know, um, ITF-approved uh, protocol at this point. And then there are so many other really exciting developments in this domain, not just the computer networking, but also multimedia, video, audio, and so on. Right. You, you teach HLS and then they come out with DAS. So you teach Dash and then they come out with low latency H, HLS and suddenly CMath. And, yeah. uh, and and it's just, it doesn't end, right? You you always need to update. So it's, it's not like that, that that professor that, you know, has his course and every year for 20, 30 years teaches the same thing. You have to work hard in this position, right? So Yeah. If you are teaching, for example, Math 101 or Physics 101, I mean, the damn rules, physics rules are not going to change. Like they haven't changed uh, for about like 400 years. So they're not going to change in the next 40 years or so, right? So yeah, you are good to go. But uh, to me, really, like it's not just the codex, for example, in the multimedia class. Uh, obviously, we have a new video uh, codec or audio codec every, you know, five, six years or so. Uh, but now it is even more than that. It's not just a video anymore. It's, uh, you know, all these you know, transport and delivery mechanisms, file format uh, stuff, uh, you know, immersive stuff. Uh, MPEG is not just doing codecs anymore, for example, right? I mean, they are doing a bunch of things. And you can still fit everything in one course? Don't you need to split it like to two or three courses? Uh, so much material. When it comes to teaching, you need to plan, obviously, a bit carefully. Uh, we have both undergrad students and grad students, right? So when you want to teach to undergrad students, you want to keep the uh, discussion a bit more high level. Uh, so you want to cover as many topics as possible, you know, so your span should be uh, relatively uh, more, so that students, once they graduate, obviously, they won't maybe remember everything, but at least, you know, maybe somewhere in their head, oh, you know, I have heard this term before, so let me check my class notes or something like that. So they can always go back, and then if they need more information, they know who to contact or what to do, where to look, and so on. Uh, but when we are teaching grad students, uh, obviously, it's a bit different story. So it's not just streaming video, but, uh, you know, all this, you know, how the actual playback works or the, you know, decoders work or, you know, how you can design a player yourself, uh, you know, uh, some internal mechanics and uh, maybe some more uh, details on how codecs work, you know, what they do differently than what we have been doing for the last 10 years or so, you know, the new codecs. Again, my classes are a bit dynamic. Obviously, there's a minimum amount of information that I need to teach. But then, uh, you know, I'm somewhat at the disposal of the students. So if they want to learn more about streaming, for example, we focus on streaming more than the others 
if they want to talk more about codex and that sort of thing, then we talk more about codex. You know, it's not like I have two two hundred students. Uh, you know, the computer networking class is a mandatory course. Obviously, every student needs to take it to graduate. But the multimedia course is an elective course, which means I, you know, uh, I get about uh, thirty to forty students, so I can adjust the topics on the fly uh, during the semester. How many are interested in codec optimization? You know, like like really deep dive into the codec. Not that many. Really, not that many. So it's more the streaming and delivery that they're wanting to learn about? Yeah, that's more exciting to students. Uh, maybe I am also maybe a better uh, marketing person for streaming than a codec. I can understand, you know, why uh, the streaming is kind of viewed as, as uh, you know, higher level application layer, you know, things that happen on top where if you go into the codec, it's kind of diving into the, the bits and the bytes and the bits of the bitstream, which is kind of um, the internals. But, you know, some people like it, you know. Let's say you're a senior student, right? So you are going to get, you know, graduate and uh, you are going to be looking for a job, uh, you know, in a couple of months. Now, if I tell you, let's uh, guys, uh, let's focus on how this new H.266 VVC codec works. Let's look at the, uh, you know, motion prediction and motion estimation. All those, uh, you know, new algorithms they have on top of what we used to have on in HEVC. That's not very an exciting topic, and uh, probably I'm gonna lose half of my class uh, during teaching, uh, you know, during that class hour anyway. But when I say Hey guys, we are going to cover how Netflix works uh, next week. Then everybody shows up in the class. Right, right. Again, because that's the high level application. Everybody can see it. Everybody can feel it. Everybody knows how it works. And also, you have many and many of these types of video applications that are built on top of protocols and codecs. But the codecs themselves, you have very few. The market is much smaller. So I can understand, you know, why students are more excited about the application level than the inner workings of the codec. You have your academic career, so as a professor, but I know that you're still deeply rooted in uh, consulting with some, you know, some very well-known and very important companies in the space. So tell us who, who you're working with and what you're doing on the, you know, on the commercial side, because I think it's always great when I meet someone who's in academia who's also getting their hands dirty and i think that's so important so i guess that's really maybe a personal choice but then uh, it really gives you the chance to get the best of both worlds uh if you're always stuck in academia uh i and i have so many such friends unfortunately you get lost in a different dimension or in a different reality where you start working on problems that nobody either cares about or, uh, you know, uh, not really relevant or maybe won't be relevant in the next uh, five, 10 years or so. Yeah, I mean, if I want to solve a problem that people are going to face in 20 years, maybe that's good, but I'm not really that much interested in that thing. The problems I want to work on, they need to be really the problems at hand or the problems we are going to see in a couple of years so that at least I might be in a good position when people realize that they have such a problem I might come out uh, with a solution. Hey, guys, look, you know, we have a solution for your problem. That was uh, one of my uh, primary motivations to be both on academia and industry. So as I transitioned from Cisco to academia, I also started my, you know, uh, small consulting company. And, uh, you know, I started working uh, first a uh, uh, startup in Silicon Valley. 
uh, they were doing uh, streaming optimization, uh, media melon. They are still around, uh, and uh, you know the topic was, I mean, perfect fit uh, for me for the things that I've been doing at Cisco at that time. Unfortunately, uh, you know, uh, after uh, about six months or so, it, I mean, it was really difficult for me to adjust to this uh, startup ecosystem coming from a big company. Not only that, but you know, the business guys were in Silicon Valley, and the developers were in uh, India. And then I was somewhere in the middle. So my day was, uh, forget about eight, nine hours. It was uh, way more than that. So it was uh, due to the time zone difference. It was, uh, it was taking a lot of time each day from me. And then um, since I had recently got married at that time and my wife was expecting our first baby, I wanted to be maybe in a more uh, comfortable position. And then I started consulting for interdigital uh, who wanted me to represent them in MPEG and uh, similar organizations for their standardization and uh, IPR-related matters. And uh, I had uh, you know, many friends in Comcast, and uh, they were trying to hook me up uh, with Comcast NBC Universal uh, as uh, Comcast was expanding uh, their operations into various areas and so on. And eventually, in early 2017, I started consulting for Comcast, so it's getting close to five years now. And, um, uh, you know, we have a number of folks in our group uh, which focus on different parts of this ecosystem. Yes, we have codec people, we have streaming people, we have systems people, we have, uh, you know, uh, accessibility or other kinds of uh, matters that are related to being a you know, big broadcaster, right, uh, from the NBC side. And then now, since... Uh, Sky is on board as well on the European side. It's a much bigger uh, system and uh, you know, uh, the, the whole company is trying to reinvent itself in terms of not just the con content because Comcast, NBC, Universal and Sky already has a lot of content and you know, rights to a lot of new sports content and so on too. But uh, in terms of being able to reach customers, yes, you know, there's a big cable customer population out there, but day by day, I'm sure it is going down. Um, because of cord cutting and, and everything. And the uh, same probably goes for Sky in Europe, to, you know, from satellite uh, and so on. People are going to IP, that's for sure. And, uh, you know, you need to have all these new capabilities for distribution over IP so that you can still keep up with the quality that your customers are uh, used to, right? So for someone who has been watching cable TV for the last 20 years, I mean, uh, you cannot really tell him about like a video being stalled or, you know, uh, audio video, you know, synchronization issues or low quality issues and that, that kind of stuff, right? I mean, people got used to uh, HD, 4K on their cable boxes for several years now. And uh, as they transition to IP, obviously you need to work a lot more harder to uh, make sure that the quality is there. And... Uh, Obviously, this is not just your network anymore. Uh, people can be anywhere, right? In a hotel, in an airport, on the bus, in the train, whatever. And then they might still want access to their content. And uh, that's where the challenge is, as we all know. And, uh, you know, uh, my colleagues, uh, you know, there's a huge team, obviously, in Comcast working on this IP video. And, uh, you know, we are trying our best uh, to get a number of services uh, up and running. Uh, or you know, uh, make sure that the you know the existing services uh, work better 
and then perform better as we move to higher resolution content, a higher frame rate content, HDR content, obviously higher bit rates and everything. It's not that simple. It sounds easy, but as we all know that it's not that simple. There's always a problem somewhere, uh, either your local Wi-Fi or ISP network or your device or whatever. And uh, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter for the customer. If the video quality sucks, it sucks. And uh, nobody will keep paying uh, for something uh, that's not really high quality. And uh, that's even more challenging for live streaming, as you can imagine. And even way more challenging for low latency live streaming, uh, where I guess uh, you guys want to talk more today. And Ali, I, I noticed that um, in some of your presentation this year, you gave presentations at DMAX and at the IEEE uh, MIPR conference. Uh, you talked a lot about low latency streaming. Um, so can you share with us what are the challenges when you're doing low latency streaming, when you want low delay, uh, how does this uh, conflict with having high quality video, for example? Right. So maybe there are the first thing uh, we need to explain is uh, what we mean by low latency. Uh, if you talk to different people, like 10 different people, they are going to give you 10 different answers. Yeah, there are different levels of low. How, how low can you go? <laughs> exactly. And I'm not going to make a you know, strict definition here because, uh, again, you know, what we consider low today might not be that low next year and so on. So, and uh, that's uh, something I try to emphasize in my presentations as well. Obviously, I also use the term low latency live streaming, but that's just because now it is uh, uh, like a marketing term or uh, acronym that everybody uses. Otherwise, it's a bit uh, really uh, confusing. Obviously, this only applies to live content, right? Uh, there is no uh, latency matter in a Netflix type of content. Uh, when you are watching, you know, on-demand video. So here we are talking uh, uh, about the uh, live content. You know, mostly it's about uh, sports, you know, most of the time, but it could be, you know, uh, news as well. So let's say we have a football game or soccer game as we call it here. And, uh, you know, uh, as the game is being played in the stadium, in the field, cameras are capturing the content and then uh, somehow uh, it gets encoded, processed, you know, and then it's ready for broadcast and then uh, streaming it might be delivered over satellite or cable or over the air broadcast so it goes through a bunch of uh, steps and then eventually it comes to your tv or other types of display and then you you watch the content now at any given time if you are not really an awfully bad job as a broadcaster you know your end-to-end -end latency will be a couple of seconds uh, you know by the time if there is a goal right at this point most of uh, the broadcasters will be able to show this on their customers' TV in a couple of seconds. You, you mean in traditional broadcast or over IP? In, in traditional broadcast, cable, satellite, and so on. On a given day, if you are watching a you know, football game on your cable TV or satellite TV subscription, it's going to be anywhere between 5 to 10 seconds latency. But the bigger issue is... For example, your uh, neighbor or someone uh, close to you watches it on a cable TV or satellite and you try to stream it. Now, in traditional streaming, and when I say traditional, I mean like non-low latency streaming solutions like regular Dash and HLS, uh, the delay difference between the real time and the, 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 the viewing time could be anywhere to 30 seconds or so. And that could be a problem for uh, some people. Or... You could be you know, following a Twitter tweet or a Facebook post or something else. 
which might also announce the goal as it happens, but you still have like 30 seconds to see it uh, on your TV or your on your phone. So I need to make sure that Dash or HLS stream has also low latency, you know, less than 10 seconds preferably. So that's where this whole thing uh, came up a couple of years ago. And as CMF, we can also talk about it, but the CMF as a unifying packaging format came around, also paved the way for low latency content preparation. Um, you know, that's uh, a, one of the uh, cornerstones uh, for low latency live streaming. It didn't have to be CMF, but CMAP was really something that many companies agreed on. So it has a high chance of being deployed by everyone else. Uh, that's, uh, you know, that's the important part here. It's, if you are packaging your content in CMAP format, then it is readily available for low latency delivery. Low latency requires two things. First, uh, chunk encoding. Uh, and then the second thing is chunk transfer. Chunk means here, Let's say you have a live football game, right? So we are encoding in really small chunks, chunks being, uh, you know, uh, several milliseconds long. You can produce those chunks out of your encoder at very short intervals. And then chunked delivery means you can transmit them to the client in also small chunks so that you don't need to wait for the entire thing. For example, when we talk about the GOPS group of pictures in media encoding, you, have, uh, you start with an iframe and then there are a bunch of P frames, B frames and so on. If you want to package the entire group of pictures in one shot, obviously that's going to cost you one GOP duration of delay anyway. With chunked encoding, we spit out uh, the video data in small pieces. With chunk delivery, we deliver them also in small pieces. So as this group of pictures still being encoded or you know captured by the camera, we are able to play them on the client side. So that's really the, uh, you know, the way to reduce latency. Now, is that the only latency? Not really. There are, you know, CDN latencies, you know, manifest latencies and a bunch of other things. But the biggest one is the buffering delay. Mm -hmm. And the buffering happens in the player. Yes, in the player. So if I have a long buffer, uh, or, you know, the size of my buffer doesn't matter, but... The important thing is how much data I'm going to put in that buffer. So I start getting the data. And then as soon as I decided I have sufficient amount of data, I can start decoding, right? Now, if I uh, rush the decoding, I will start decoding, but maybe my network will not be able to deliver you know, the subsequent packets on time. And then my decoder will run out of data. In that case, you will see a stall. Your video is going to freeze, right? And that's not good. If you wait for too long, yes, that will give you a comfortable space because even the network doesn't uh, deliver packets for a second, uh, you might be fine. But in that case, your latency will increase. That's the trade-off. Now, if you're on a um, you know fiber network, if you have a really solid uh, Wi-Fi at home, so you know uh, you don't really expect too many problems from your network, then you can go with a lower buffer uh, threshold option so that your latency could be lower. If my video is gonna stall like a, a few times a minute or maybe a few times every 10 minutes or so, I still don't like it. And many people don't like it either. So in that case, maybe you want to increase your buffer by a couple of seconds and maybe you will not see any stalls anymore. So um, in uh, mobile networks, obviously we still need to have a you know, significant buffer because of all the cellular transmission or if you are especially driving in a car or on a train or whatever, 
the, the transmission speed can be low uh, for a few seconds. But even a few seconds of transmission loss is going to cost you uh, a big time and you're going to stall the video. So we need a larger buffer in those cases. In your talks, you proposed a solution that is based on changing playback speed. And I thought, you know, that was something new. I never heard about this one before. Actually, that's not a new technology. So that was first proposed for voice over IP like uh, 20, 30 years ago. Ah, oh, now, now I remember. Sometimes in Skype, when there's a problem in the network, suddenly I hear the person talking very fast and kind of completing, uh, you know, <laughs> the things that you missed. It's suddenly all the packets arrive and they're talking faster. You're right, you're right. It does happen in those voice over IP applications. They used to call it uh, adaptive playout. Uh, and some people call it adaptive playback as well when there's also video involved. Uh, it is way easier to do this in audio domain because as you can imagine, maybe one third of the time actual words or letters are coming out of my mouth. The remaining time is mostly silence, right? And you can compress that. You need to compress or expand the silence periods which makes my talking a bit slower or faster so that I can adjust my playback speed based on the data I have in my buffer. If I'm running out of data, I need to slow down so that hopefully more data will arrive before I need them. That's the whole idea. So how does it look for video? What's, what's the experience? Do I see frames like played back faster and then slower, like fast motion, slow motion? Exactly. So obviously... Changing the playback speed has many use cases. For example, if you are watching a slow video on Netflix, uh, I mean, Netflix has this uh, knob where you can adjust the playback speed, right? 1.5x or 2x, which means like you can finish the video or movie in half of the time. Uh, YouTube has the same thing. So sometimes people are just talking, maybe they are a slow talker. So you just uh, accelerate the things. And in that case, we just accelerate the frame rate. So the content, let's say, is at 30 frames per second, but we play it at uh, 45 frames per second. So it's like uh, 1.5x, 50% faster. And obviously, you do the same thing for audio. And uh, they need to be in synchronized fashion, otherwise it's not going to work. Uh, and uh, when you need to slow it down, maybe the guy is a very uh, fast talker. Instead of 30 frames per second, you play it at 25 frames per second. Now... Most adaptive uh, streaming clients being optimized or developed for low latency, they will have this functionality. Because, uh, you know, if you don't have this, as soon as you have a very small amount of data in your playback buffer, your video is going to stall. But by doing this, uh, you might get away with some of the stalls. Maybe you are not going to be able to avoid all the stalls, but you will be able to get away with some of the stalls. But the tricky part is here... If I speed up the video or slow down the video, and uh, the same goes for audio, I want to make sure that it is not that visible or noticeable by the viewer. Right. For audio, if, if you need to do some processing, otherwise the pitch changes, right? The pitch changes. And uh, if you do speed changes for up to 6%, like a slowdown or acceleration, it is mostly okay. The pitch change is not going to hurt people. Uh, they are not going to hear the difference. But if it is more than 6%, so for example, if you're going to accelerate the audio playback by 20%, 50%, whatever, then you need to do a pitch-preserving time compression or expansion. And in that case, you need that. But for audio, it's very simple. It's not really a great amount of signal processing. Many browsers actually do that uh, automatically today. 
So it's not a very significant uh, processing. Yeah, but, but for video, what happens? For video, well, uh, you can test it yourself. For example, let's say you know a guy is walking on the street. It starts walking faster. So at some point, it might be noticeable or it might not be noticeable. I mean, depending on what is the context, right? So if it is uh, fast and furious, for example, right? Uh, doesn't matter if you slow down or accelerate the video playback because the whole video, the whole movie is full of with high-speed car chasings or, you know, some slow motion uh, effects and sort of thing, right? So, you know, even if you do something on your own, you know, the viewer is just going to think that this is part of the movie itself. As long as you just don't do this in the middle of a conversation, for example, suddenly the guy starts speaking uh, more slowly or uh, faster. Uh, so if you do this in a just car chasing scene, people are not going to even realize the difference. So as I said, many low latency streaming players now uh, today do this, but they do this just purely based on the amount of data they have in their playback buffer. If they have less data uh, than the desired value, like a threshold, they slow down the video, the playback. If they have enough data, they start accelerating the playback so that they can reduce the latency again. If you just only keep slowing down but never accelerate, then you will just, uh, you know, get a higher and higher latency over time. Yeah, your stream is then further behind <laughs> as the program advances. Yeah, exactly. And some players just do that as well. They just care about the initial latency, and let's say I want five seconds latency for this playback. Yes, you start with five, but maybe by the time the football game uh, ends, maybe you are like uh, two minutes behind the live point. But then there are some other players who does uh, both acceleration and deacceleration. So they try to maintain the target latency as much as they can. What is required technically? Uh, maybe you can you can talk about that now, because I think a lot of listeners are, are, are now saying, okay, that sounds interesting. I've heard about this, or, you know, we're wanting to experiment, but... What's required technically? If you are doing this uh, in a uh, content-blind fashion, meaning that uh, you don't really pay attention to the content itself, but you just look at your target latency, your current latency, and your uh, current uh, buffer level. If you are just looking at these three uh, numbers, then you don't need anything from the server side. This is purely a client-based operation. You know, I don't have enough data, so I need to slow down or I have enough data uh, and my latency is higher than the target, then I need to accelerate a bit. So it's a very simple if-else statement, uh, like a, a couple of if-else statements. And uh, we have done this in uh, Dash.js uh, uh, and uh, you know contributed to code itself. And it works very well, right? I mean, that's fine. You just need to pick your speed limit ranges carefully. So you want to accelerate uh, maybe up to 200% or you want to slow down to 50%. That's the limit you need to give. So that's only for the client side. If you are doing this uh, in a content-aware fashion, which is something I presented in this Dmux talk, for example, you need some metadata from the server side. And uh, this is really to let the client know how convenient or how suitable a given media fragment is if you want to change the playback speed. Let's say we do this for every second. I mean, we are going to do this in a much shorter time scale, but just as an example, for every second of my content, 
I'm going to give you a number, a score, in terms of how suitable that one second content is if you want to change the speed, increase or decrease, either way. And the client will take that information into account when it is trying to adjust the playback speed. And how does the server create this score? Is this automatically or manually? That's the important question here. That's something we generate at the encoding stage. So we have a number of ideas, uh, a number of things we tried. And uh, I'm not really claiming any of them is the best or like uh, could be the optimal solution. Obviously, there might be better other things. For example, uh, there are, one of the things that we looked at was the amount of motion. So if there is too much motion in a given content, we say that this is not a very convenient media piece uh, for you to change the uh, playback speed. Or in some other cases, we looked at conversation, the amount of conversation people are having. If it is in the middle of a conversation, then we don't want to change the speed too much because changing the speed of the conversation could be easily uh, noticeable. But if it is just uh, someone driving a car uh, with nobody talking, then maybe you can drive the car faster or more slowly and nobody's going to, or maybe less people are going to notice that. So the magical number, and this could be in the number of numbers, right? It doesn't have to be a single number, but for our demonstration, we used a score between 0 and 100 or between 0 and 1, however you look at it. So that tells you how convenient or suitable that current uh, media piece is if you want to change the playback speed. And, uh, you know, the best thing is to produce this number during the encoding stage because we believe that most of the stuff we will be using in generating this uh, uh, magical number uh, needs uh, some sort of uh, media decoding anyway. And we don't want to, you know, decode and, you know, just to get this information in real time. So we just rather modify the encoder to produce this number and then convey it along with the uh, current uh, media so that the client can be told about uh, what it can do or what it cannot do. If it is a very significant uh, scene, for example, the next one second is a very significant scene, you tell the client not to change the playback speed at all, no matter what. If you need to stall, just stall, for example. It could be like that, right? In some cases, stalling might be better than just uh, changing the playback speed. Because as you can imagine, if you change the playback speed uh, 1% or 2%, it's not going to be noticeable, but it's not going to get you anything anyway. Uh, it's not going to make a lot more data to arrive on time uh, with respect to the original playback. If you need to do this in uh, low latency live streaming, you know, our speed changes are quite significant, you know, 20%, 50%. I mean, those are easily noticeable if you are not careful. So uh, that's the idea here. If you can let the client know, because the client doesn't know anything about the content before it can decode and to look at inside the code, code, right? And once we actually, uh, we do this in the adaptive streaming plane, so this all is done in the player side. Once we give the data to the decoder and we tell the decoder how fast or slow it should be decoded, it is done. It is out of our hands. So we need to decide this before we give the information uh, to the decoder and uh, we, we need that information in the player uh, domain, not the decoder domain. 
I'm wondering, and I think some listeners are maybe wondering about this too. AV1 has a pretty well-developed set of tools uh, around SVC, you know, so for temporal scalability, how does this relate? You know, like, is it sort of a subset or a superset, I guess, of, of temporal scalability, or can you comment on that? Adaptive playback obviously cannot work uh, miracles, right? It can save you from some stalling, and then it can also help you maintain uh, latency around your target value. But if your network conditions are really bad, there is only so many things that the adaptive playback can do. If your network conditions are really bad for watching in the, the game in HD, then you better watch it in SD, right? That's one of the things I mean people need to understand. Uh, adaptive playback, yes, it is necessary. It's a very good tool, useful tool, but uh, it's not the first thing that you need to look into to fix your low latency live streaming problems. If a one second or a one and a half second buffer is not sufficient for your uh, current conditions, then again, you know, adaptive uh, playback can help you a bit, but maybe you need to increase your buffer to three seconds or five seconds just to be able to provide a more pleasant viewing experience. So having said that, there are other things that you can do to improve uh, the video quality. Now, at the end of the day, as a consumer, uh, we all care about the video quality or audio quality, right? It's just uh, I'm talking about video, but everything equally applies to audio as well. Now, if you can deliver higher quality bits at the same bitrate with another codec, uh, it could be AV1, it could be uh, VVC, HEVC, whatever, for that specific content, obviously that's better. Because by definition, if I am able to deliver that many bits, I'm going to get a better quality than uh, the other guy. So that's one thing. Scalable video uh, gives you some extra features, but it also costs something, right? So to be able to get the same quality, overall, you need to spend more bits at the end of the day. So if I want to get, uh, you know, let's say uh, 90% quality, maybe my single bitrate encoding, uh, like a single layer encoding uh, will require me, let's say, 5 megabit per second. With SVC, I will probably need 5.5 or 6 megabit per second. So if I use that 6 megabit per second with single layer encoding, maybe instead of 90, I'm going to get 95% quality. So first of all, we need to be aware of that SVC or any type of scalable video encoding comes uh, uh, with a cost, you know, a bandwidth overhead. I mean, there is no way around that. Now we have that in the pocket as well. Now, what about this temporal uh, scalability? Temporal scalability gives you, uh, as the name applies, uh, scalability in the temporal domain, time domain, meaning that you can get rid of some of the frames uh, so that overall, Maybe you are not going to be playing the video for some time at 30 frames per second, but you are going to play it at 20 frames per second. So overall, if you don't receive those frames, you are going to be saving some bandwidth, uh, but you will still keep the video decoding uh, ongoing, right? Now, this can work in you know uh, one-to-one or one-to-many conversational video applications, maybe when there is uh, some sort of uh, simulcast option, like, for example, now I'm not sending my video, but let's say I am sending my video in two layers, base layer and then enhancement layer. That's what SVC does. Uh, So if you get the base layer, you get 20 frames per second. 
If you get both layers, you get 30 frames per second, for example. Now, if Mark has the sufficient bandwidth, he will get both layers. If Dror has a bandwidth sufficient only for the base layer, he will get only base layer. That's uh, the simulcast scenario, and then it works well for those kinds of scenarios. With adaptive streaming, unfortunately, we pretty much pack everything in a single uh, segment or so, as you can imagine. And uh, the client will not be able to cherry pick which frames it wants or not during the streaming session. Yes, you know, LLHLS has some ideas uh, and some uh, provisions for this, but when you come to a point, Mark, where you make individual requests per frame, uh, it's going to be really a chatty protocol. It's going to be too much overhead in terms of request and response traffic. You really don't want to go in there, in my opinion. You want to make a request to a full segment, which comes with either 30 frames or 24 frames, whatever, and uh, you are done with that. So you can decide to pack the scalable layer uh, in a different segment. But in that case, uh, Mark, as you need both segments, you are going to be making two different uh, requests anyway. It will increase the request response traffic. And uh, it will also cost you the additional uh, bandwidth overhead. What if I also offered the same uh, 30 frames per second at a higher quality uh, at the same bitrate or uh, the same quality at a lower bitrate. You will better pick that one too. So my intuition tells me that there is no sweet spot for people to use scalable video codecs in a, you know, OTT distribution. It certainly makes uh, a lot of sense in video conferencing type of applications where there's a, a lot of simulcast stuff going on. But for video streaming, I really don't see any benefit or a sweet spot where it makes difference. Scalable video comes with a cost, not only at the overhead, but also encoding and decoding complexity. So you, you better uh, you know, judge your options carefully before you go uh, through that route. And this is not just about AV1, this is about any you know, scalable version of HEVC and so on. You know, you ended your comment um, with just you know, hitting the nail on the head, as, as we say, everything in video comes at some cost. You know, nothing is free. Right. It's always a trade-off. Yeah. And Dora and I just, you know, we, we really sort of pound this whole point home because, uh, you know, vendors, and of course, both Dora and I are, are vendors. So, you know, we're, we're not just shooting at, uh, at other vendors, but, um, you know, we like to think we're balanced, but vendors so frequently make these sweeping pronouncements or presentations as if, you know, their particular approach does not come with a cost or a trade-off. And it just simply isn't true. And especially when we're talking about these various uh, low latency strategies, you know, I think a way we can look at it, you know, it's kind of like, I want to reduce latency. Great. There's a lot of different ways to do that, you, you know, and each strategy has its own set of pros and cons and, and trade-offs. And depending on what you're optimizing for, maybe a scalable uh, video codec approach is the best. It's the right one. Maybe not. You know, yeah, as we great. said, it depends. It depends. It depends. <laughs> it depends. Yeah, exactly. There is a huge difference uh, between a, a content provider trying to deliver its content over a number of CDNs to a number of uh, people in different countries, for example, and a small content provider who is trying to deliver its content over its own network to very well connected, maybe fiber connected or whatever 
customers, right? I mean, your your options in the first scenario versus in the second scenario are vastly different. Uh, in one, you are maybe dealing with one uh, CDN. In the other one, you are dealing with multiple CDNs. In one, you are just dealing with clients that are within your uh, close proximity, like maybe within the same city or town or maybe a small country like Switzerland. In the other one, maybe you are dealing with a country like Australia or Canada or US, where even the you know the speed of light uh, makes a difference, uh, right? And uh, you know maybe in some cases you are dealing with uh, wired set-top boxes that have really a lot of processing power that can do a lot of tricks, or in in some cases you are dealing with all kinds of uh, shitty browser implementations or mobile uh, you know operating systems. It's not just always iOS, uh, you know, 14, 15, 13. Sometimes you need to support iOS 8, 10, uh, 9, whatever, or older versions of Android, right? So all those things obviously uh, limit your options. And uh, one of the things that you also need to pay attention to, yes, Netflix charges pretty much the same uh, money for everyone. But what if you are consistently getting a worse quality than your neighbor or your roommate or uh, your friend? I mean, you're going to get pissed at some point, right? You know, he pays the same money, but he gets 4K HDR. I get a, you know, lousy video just because, you know, he's on an iPhone, I am on an Android or vice versa. So those issues are a headache for operators or providers. And you got to make sure that you do your best for everybody, uh, you know, every customer possible. But then when you have 200 million customers, I mean, th- things can get really nasty. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You, you, you know, it's like we can get so obsessed and, you know, over over the algorithms and everything and the block sizes and, you know, all the cool things that are happening in these new standards. And that's great. And there's a place for that. At the same time, none of that matters if what we're talking about right now it isn't isn't working. And if the so the streaming, you know, the the, the protocols and the architectures, and as you said, Ollie, you know, a couple times, you know, the mechanics, uh, you know, of how the bits uh, traverse the the networks over the open internet through the multiple CDNs and and over the player, and then ultimately get rendered by a viewer, like. This is kind of all that matters, <laughs> you know, because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, it is. Yeah. You know, like uh, when I was a student, H264 ABC was just coming out. And I remember one of our professors saying, oh, you know, this is the ultimate video codec. I don't think uh, we can do any better than this. Never need another one. <laughs> because, you know, like uh, when he showed us a couple of examples, like MPEG-1 versus MPEG-2 versus uh, H264, we said, Wow and look at the quality and, and all that. And, uh, you know, what if we could actually deliver this over the internet and so on? And, uh, I mean, look at us, like, uh, uh, you know, there was HEVC, there was uh, VVC, there is LCVC, there is EVC, there is AV1, there is a bunch of other stuff. I mean, uh, and uh, people are not even stopping, right? You know, I appreciate all the work the codec people do, uh, but, again, at the end of the day, if you cannot deliver it, it doesn't really matter what you do. Yes, a couple of megabits of uh, broadband was a big deal like 10 years ago, but uh, it's not really that critical at this point. Now, people have fiber or, you know, high-speed cable or whatever, and it doesn't mean that we are not having any bandwidth issues. Obviously, ISPs were never designed for this purpose in the first place, right? When I uh, had my first broadband, 
maybe I was using just maybe a couple of hundred megabytes a month. Now I'm easily consuming a couple of terabytes per month now. And, uh, you know, the 90% of it being video, obviously. And, uh, you know, I'm not paying uh, a lot more to my ISPs, right? I mean, they cannot really charge uh, a significant amount of money, but they need to carry those bits. And uh, yes, there are still a lot of choking points. What defines the video quality or streaming experiences, you know, what your ISP or CDN does on those uh, problematic moments. Yeah, so I have to put a small preview for our next episode where we're going to interview uh, Javier from uh, Broadpeak about exactly this issue of how does the content provider, how can the content provider um, collaborate with the ISP to provide a better experience uh, for users. So that's really a, a very interesting uh, topic. But uh, today, uh, this really was a fascinating uh, discussion, Ali. I think uh, we learned a lot about uh, low latency streaming, about adaptive playback, um, especially about content-aware adaptive uh, playback, and all the issues you know around um, streaming and handling those uh, network problems, and uh, as we discussed, all of the trade-offs. So, uh, thank you very much for uh, coming on the Video Insiders podcast today. My pleasure, and certainly this was a very pleasant experience for me as well. Well, thank you again for coming on. Sure. And just as a reminder, um, for those who want to learn more about this, uh, I mean, uh, if they go to my website, uh, just Google my name, it will show up, and then they can look at the slides from those conference talks and papers and things like that. And then there's even a demo uh, on the website uh, where we show how this content will playback work sort of on a, uh, you know, real-time football game. You know, we, we, we try to understand where the goal or where the penalties are, that sort of thing. So we try to use that information for adjusting the playback speed uh, rather than just doing it blindly. So, the, you know, the demos uh, will probably be easier for people to look at and understand. Right. We'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes. Okay. So thank you uh, to our listeners. And uh, as we say, and... Uh, as we paraphrase lately, happy encoding and happy streaming. Right, Mark? Absolutely. <laughs> Bye. Thank you for listening to the Video Insiders podcast. If you'd like to appear on the show, just send an email to thevideoinsiders at beamer.com. That's B-E-A-M-R.com with a brief description on what you're working on and why you think it's interesting for our audience. This podcast is sponsored by Beamer Imaging. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity that they represent.